Well, good morning, everybody. So let's start this morning like we normally do with our uh, scripture memory passage. Does anybody have Matthew 3, 16 and 17? Has anybody got Matthew 3, 16 and 17 memorized? Are we going to go over today? Darla's got it? I know, right? Nobody else has got it? All right. Amy, you got Matthew 3, 16 and 17? No pressure, right? This is Amy, everyone. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll never be late again. Yes. Uh, so, Miss Darla, do you have it? Excellent. Nice and loud. Now, what was last week's lesson about? I'm going to distract her and then we'll see if she can do it. The Trinity, right? So this verse illustrates what? The Trinity, yes, excellent. We'll start off with the easy questions, so go for it. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and the Spirit of God descended like a dove yep. and lighted on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well Boom, very good. Great job, Miss Tarlin. Thank you much. You have it, Miss Amy? Yes, of course she does. Excellent. Let's go. All right, good job. All right, come on up, ladies. So for those of you that don't know, we do uh, giveaways in Sunday school. Uh, we will have a scripture memory passage at the end of each lesson, and if you can stand and quote it at the beginning of the next week, uh, we've got free stuff up at the front for you. So good to know. So this is week seven of part two of systematic theology. So we have done the, it's going to get complicated soon with the numbers, I can tell. Um, we've looked at the existence of God, the knowability of God. We've looked at the attributes of God. Last week, we looked at the being of God, His uh, fundamental structure and nature. And then today, we look at the creation of God. And when I read my notes this morning, I said that too fast, and it, it almost sounded like God Himself was created. That's not the way I want you to interpret that. This is the creation that God Himself made. All right. So when we talk about the creation of God, that's where we're at. So if you're a note-taker... Grab your pen or a pencil. We've got the first three blanks here in the first sentence. Uh, it's a quote from Wayne Grudem. This is the book that we're using as our uh, structure here. It says, We may define the doctrine of creation as follows. God created the entire universe out of... What goes in the blank? <coughs> Nothing. Nothing goes in the blank. <laughs> Sorry. They probably won't get better if this is your first time. So that's just kind of the way that works. It was originally very... Good. It was originally very good. And he created it to glorify himself. That's right. This is one of the more obvious definitions as we go through this series. So we define the doctrine of creation as follows. God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good. And he created it to glorify himself. So let's go uh, to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. You may not even need to look this one up. So I don't know. Does anybody get this one memorized? In the beginning, God did what? He created what? Heavens and the earth. And He used what to do it? His words. Very good. Very good. Uh, somebody left an article. My son is in love with uh, Legos. He, we, I don't think he's going to get to go to college because we've spent so much money on Legos. But um, 
This is an article about Legos. And, and Legos are used for what? Build. Building stuff, right? Yeah, we use Legos to build stuff. And the reality is God didn't use any material to bring the universe into creation. He just said, let it happen, and it did. Uh, so this out-of-nothing concept is, is something that we really can't relate to uh, at all. And this concept is repeated several different times in the Scripture. So flip over to Revelation 4.11. We'll just do the front and the back. This is probably the, the easiest point of today's lesson um, to kind of wrap our heads around, that he, he created this out of nothing. So what does Revelation 4.11 say? He created how many things? No, no. What, what is it? Like, say the word again really loud for me. All. All? So what does that really mean, though? It means most, right? It means 99. 99.8, 99.9. 100%. 100%. You sure? Positive. How do you know that? Because the big first verse in the Bible said he created everything, and we're wrapping the whole thing up. Oh, just a reminder, you know, before we go, he created everything. Right? This, this whole concept is taught all the way out, all the way through Scripture. Now, when we say all, what do we really mean? We mean all the physical stuff, right? Because the spiritual stuff, that existed before, before, right? You think I'm, this is, this is not trickeration. No, let's go to Nehemiah 9.6. Nehemiah 9.6. Um. There's several different characters in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is one. Um, yes, thank you, Captain Obvious. Uh, Ezra is another. And uh, there are several beautiful prayers in the book of Nehemiah. And, and this is kind of in the middle. And Nehemiah is tough to find. So if you found Nehemiah already, give yourself a pat on the back. It is before 10 o'clock in the morning, and you have found one of the lesser-known small books in the Old Testament that you can kind of flip through real fast. So who's got Nehemiah 9.6? Stephen? You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of the heavens, with all their hosts. With what? With all their hosts. What's the host we're talking about here? The heaven of heavens. Heaven. Yeah, like heaven, heaven, right? Yeah, okay. So who lives in heaven? God, Jesus. Yeah. So the angels live in heaven as well. You know, they're, and they're coming back and forth to earth. Uh, but... He created all of them too. And sometimes we get the perspective that, well, you know, God and the angels, they always existed. Well, part of that sentence is true, but part of that sentence isn't. God brought the angels into existence to glorify himself. Um, and, and we believe, we believe that he did that at the same time that he created the earth. Maybe. The scripture seems to lean that direction. Um, so Nehemiah 9, 6, and then Colossians 1, 16. He's got Colossians 1.16. Through whom? Jesus. How do you know it's Jesus? Because it's a big H. There you go. Capitalization matters sometimes in the scriptures, yes. For through him, right? God created everything. No, she said all. Same thing? Okay. God created everything. Oh, this is even clearer for us, isn't it? So everything up in the heavenly realms. Anybody have a different translation? 
What's your different translation say, Josh? Heavens and earth, right? It's, it's the idea that uh, this particular translation is trying to say that this is not the sky. Okay? Because sometimes the Bible uses the phrase heavens for the sky itself and the things in the, uh, the stars and the moon and the sun and those types of things. So the heavenly realm is, this is a kind of a loftier way to say I'm not talking about the sky. I'm talking about the stuff that, that is not where we are. Does that make sense? Cool. Good. Now... Uh, let's go back for just... I skipped a point in my notes. Let's go back for just a second and talk about this concept that God created everything out of nothing. Um, if you believe that God had source material when He created everything, the problem with this is that source material would have existed for all time as well and would have been on par with God as far as the eternality of His nature. Okay, so yes, we just stepped off into the deep end for just a second. We'll come back. Don't worry. We're not going to wait around there. We're coming back. But if you believe that there was source material, this poses a real problem because this material is on par with God as far as his existence. Does this make sense? But if he brings everything into existence with the power of his word, well, then he is above creation and he is dominant over creation. He is sovereign over creation. Now, there's one part of creation that was a little bit different than all the other parts. Let's go to Genesis 2. Let's flip back to the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis 2. So can anybody name what God made on the first six days of creation? The public class. The public, the, the what clan? Puggles. Okay, I thought you said the public class. I was like, we have a public class? That's awesome. Everything should be open to the public. That's wonderful. Okay, the Puggles. So tell us who the Puggles are. They are the late twos, early threes, and I want Late twos, as in years old, and early threes, as in oh my, uh, in Puggles. <laughs> Excellent, wonderful. So as a teacher of the Puggles, I'm not putting you on the spot or anything for the second time in five minutes, but as a teacher of the Puggles, would that be something you could list? Excellent. Can you tell us the first six days? In Puggle language. In Puggle language. That works. That works. Puggle language. On day one, God made the sky. Yes. Day two, the light. Day three, the sun. Day four, the moon. Day five, the Oh, we had to throw vegetables in there, didn't we? Yes. Okay. I know where you're going with this. All right. <laughs> Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Great. Day five, birds and fish. Great. Day six is people and animals. Excellent. Wonderful. Um, so, very good. I'll give you a hand for that. That was impressive. Did anybody else know that? Like, you could recite them? Used to. Used to, yeah. Like, most of us. We, at some point, we, we learned that material. Was there anything that God made that was the manner in which he made it was different than the manner in which he made everything else? Man, right? Yeah. What does the scripture say that he did? How did he create man? He formed him, right? He formed him out of the dust of the ground. So it implies some God got his hands engaged with this and then breathed into man. So, so there's a distinction here. Man is special in the creation of God in that there was... Uh, the theologians like to call it the, de- the direct creation of man. This was a distinction between the way he spoke everything else into existence and he actually got his hands dirty in the process of making man. All right, so let's switch gears for just a second uh, and we'll talk about the creation of time. Now, one of the things that I love about Genesis chapter 1, because Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, right? so, so we've established a couple things with, here, with this. We've established history. Because there's a period before us, and we've established 
actually mathematics because there's a time here. So we're establishing some relationship, one thing compared to another thing. We're establishing language because God speaks. He speaks the first words. So he establishes language, so the basis of what we know as far as communication. Um, He also establishes science in that he creates all of these different things. He establishes the branches of physics, biology, chemistry. Uh, All of this gets created in Genesis chapter 1. And sometimes we, we rightly communicate it in a way that is very succinct to teach to others, but we forget the fact that there were a lot of other things that were going on here that we just take for granted because all these structures exist now and we have learned things inside these structures. However, time is a big deal and God has created time in Genesis chapter 1. So when we think about God existing eternally, it's not eternally in time. It's He created time. He can exist inside of time and He exists outside of this creation as well. If that makes your brain hurt, it should, because we don't get that. We don't know of anything, we don't have any direct experience with anything in the universe that exists outside of time, right? So so I look at, which hand, it was this hand. I look at this hand. This hand has a scar right here, because some time ago when I was a little kid, I put my hand uh, on a wall, and the wall had a nail in it. It didn't go well. And over time, that has changed. It has gotten much Lighter, it's gotten much smoother, it's no big deal now. But 10 minutes after it happened, it was a problem. It was really bad. But time influences all of our experience right now. That is not how God operates. He created this. He can exist in it, and He exists outside of it as well. So when we talk about the eternality of God, that He goes, this is my, my, this is probably not sign language for eternality, but... This is my sign language for eternality because I graph everything on a line in my head and it's going both directions. Um, He exists outside of this, this way, but also this way. He's not on the line. He's outside that line. So I want to make sure we covered that concept as well. Uh, Let's go to John 1, uh, 3. John 1, 3. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to make sure that that we're not solely focusing on the Father as we uh, understand creation here. So John 1, 3 implies whom else is involved in creation. What's 1, 3 say? And who's the him we're talking about? This is Jesus Christ, right? So, so Jesus Christ has a participatory part in this creative effort. And then flip back to Genesis 1-2. Yes, we're flipping today. It's okay. It'll slow down in about 15 minutes, so don't worry. Genesis 1-2. Who's got it? So in the, be- in the beginning... And the earth was without form and void. And the earth was without form and void and darkness. Does this sound like a happy place? Not really. I think I'm going to pass, right? Vacation spots, description, bullet point number one, without form. Bullet point number two, darkness, point three, void. Nope, going to pass. Not signing up for that one, right? And what happens next? It was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And the Spirit of God moves upon the face of the waters. So, so there is no life activity, right? So we see this theological point very early on in the Scriptures. There's no life activity. The Spirit of God comes, and then what happens over the next five days? 
life just blows up. It goes everywhere. There is tons and tons and tons of life. And God is teaching us in Genesis chapter 1 that the Spirit is involved with the creation of life. Now this is true spiritually in our own lives. Not only the, the drawing of a man to Christ, but in the sustaining of someone in their relationship with Christ. So this idea that uh, the, the Son and the Holy Spirit are also involved. Alright, so we're going to do two words today. Uh, I'm going to draw a whole bunch of pictures on the board. None of these are in your notes. Uh, these are all online, though. At the very bottom of your handout is a website address. That's the website address that all of the material that we look at and uh, talk about in Sunday school is located. It's also the location of my notes that I'm teaching from this morning. So if you ever want to, because I've got a, we've got a page of n- nine pages of notes this morning. I know, right? Amy's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yes, we will go to the worship service. Don't worry, because um, I'm going to skip a big chunk of it and just refer you there. So. Two terms. Uh, The next big section is creation is distinct from God, yet always dependent upon God. So the term, this is Grudem's definition here, the term often used to say that God is much greater than creation is the word transcendent. Transcendent. If you can spell this one on your own, then that's pretty awesome. So, transcendent. Math guy, not English guy. <laughs> okay. Very simply, this means that God is far above the creation in the sense that He is greater than the creation and He is independent of it. Okay. So I'm going to draw, draw several different things that talk about this. The next one, uh, the next word here is imminent. I M M A N E N T. Imminent. And this means He remain. He is remaining in creation. So he is not an abstract deity, removed from form and uninterested in his creation. So I'm going to draw a couple different pictures for you. So this is Grudem's idea of what reality looks like. So we have God, and we have creation. All right, we got it? They're distinct. They are not the same. Now, there's a couple different things that we're going to talk about here. So this is... we say this is the universe, this is the different distinction. I'm going to draw several of these. So this is true. This is some people's view of things. This is materialism. Right? Do you see God in this picture? No. There is no God in this picture. There are some people that hold to a worldview that says everything that exists is what we can touch and feel and taste and see and hear. That's the world. It's all about materialism. So this is one. So so is this true? Okay. Is this true? No. No. Very good. Now, there's another. Where'd my stuff go, Jules? I needed to. Napkins, yes. We'll get some napkins. Pause here for a commercial break. So, there's several different ways that you can draw these pictures. Um, So, this would be atheism, right? What is this? No. God is not everything. That is Buddhism. Because becoming one with the universe is becoming one with God. You become God. You are moving into a oneness, right? This is also false because God is not the universe, right? And we know this. Here's my iPad. My iPad is not God. 
I mean, that, that just sounds silly, right? Okay. So we've got um, pantheism is the technical term for this, is that everything is God. Now, there's another idea. So the universe is down here. So God exists and the universe exists. Is there any interaction between the two? No, this is dualism. Also known as Star Wars theology. There's a force that is not personal. This is a distinction. This makes sense? These are all those different kinds of worldviews. And then, the scariest one, I think... So there's God, and there's a creation. Is there any connection between the two? Now, this is a hands-off God. This is deism. This is the idea that God set everything into motion and then stepped back and basically says, I don't care. What, what kind of hope is there in a universe like this? There is no assurance whatsoever at the end of anything that things will go well. This is beautiful. This implies love and care and concern and engagement and involvement. And this is abandonment and lack of hope and despair, right? Because there is a God, but He doesn't care about me. Wow. I mean, right? Soak on that one for about five seconds and you'll get good and depressed, right? I mean, this is, this is really, really scary stuff. So, several different ways here. I'm going to erase the bad one because I don't want y'all staring at that. There we go. Hope, love, joy. Um, so a couple of things. Let's go to Psalm 19, 1 and 2. So why did God create the universe? Why did God create the universe? I think we'll see that pretty clearly. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. Who's got it? The heavens declare what? The scientific advancement of man, is that what you said? The power and the reach of our Hubble telescope? Our ability to understand what happened billions of years ago? What do the heavens declare? And the firmament shows his handiwork. So, so he made these things and it reflects back his glory. And this is a pretty basic concept, right? And we've, we've understood this for quite some time. He made the, the universe and it reflects back his glory. Uh, what state was the universe in when he made it? At the end of that first week, what state was everything in? He, he used two words to describe it. Very good. And just good, but very good. He made the lights and he made the... Keep going. Now she's got to sing the song. Yeah, you, no, yes. The skies, the light, vegetation, sun, moon, stars, people, and animals. And I, and I will correct your order, actually. It's animals and then people. But all that was good until he made it man, and then it was very good, right? Man is the crowning achievement. It was very good. So, so he makes all these things. It's very good. So the question that is posed at the very top of your handout is what? Right underneath the... It says, why, how, and when did God create the universe? So, 
So how did God create the universe? I think we've answered this one so far. How did he create the universe? He spoke it into existence, right? Why did he create the universe? For his glory, right? To reflect back his glory. He did not create the universe for companionship. This is a common teaching right now in Christianity. He did not create the universe for companionship. God is a triune being. He was fully and completely whole himself. He existed outside of time for, in our minds, eternity past, completely and wholly complete. I don't know how else to say that, right? He didn't need us. He created us to reflect back his glory, the whole universe to reflect back his glory. I'm glad that he did, um, but he didn't have to. So let's look at a couple of different things here, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. The relationship between Scripture and findings of modern science. Because now we're going to try to answer that last question up at the top of the handout, which is, when did God create all these things? So a couple quotes here. Uh, somebody go to Hebrews 11.3 for me. Hebrews 11.3. One of the beautiful things about the Scripture is the Scripture never puts boundaries on what it is allowed to speak about. It never says, you know what, you can trust me for everything, but, but you know, not this one area. Or I actually don't talk about this area. Or, you know, we're going to ignore this topic or this subject. He doesn't do that. So Hebrews 11.3, who's got it? What's the second word in that sentence? Faith. By faith, we understand what? The universe was formed at God's command. The universe was formed at God's command. Now, why do we have to accept this by faith? I wasn't there, right? I showed up 38 years ago. I missed out on that day. I wasn't there. I've got to take somebody else's word for it. I'm going to take the word of the one who did it. That makes the most sense to me. Um, there's different people that take different words for it, but that's the idea. So I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to repeat something Grudem says here. Uh, and I think that we're all going to be able to agree with this. I think probably for the next five minutes or so, everybody's going to be on the same page, and then we'll probably start to diverge a little bit. But there are some theories that are not consistent with Scripture. Is that pretty safe? We good there? Yeah? Okay. So he's going to list a couple of them here. Uh, some things that are just, just not consistent with Scripture. For the first one here is secular theories. So secular theories, S-E-C-U-L-A-R, secular theories. These are theories that say the creation of the universe occurred without any involvement from God. And, and as Christians, as Bible believers, I would look at that and I would say, no, right? That's just not true. Just not going to be true. So any theory that espouses a creation without the existence of God, without the involvement of God, we're just not going to be able to handle that. Two is theistic evolution. T-H-E-I-S-T-I-C. Theistic evolution. So theism is God. So let's talk about these two ideas for a second. When you take the concept of God and His involvement in the universe, and you look at the direct creation of man, that the Scripture very plainly teaches that God got involved with the direct creation of man, that there was something very specific and engaging about the direct creation of man that is completely opposite from the philosophy of macroevolution, which would say lots of change over time, over millions of years, to accomplish and result in a human being. Can we, can we agree 
that the fundamental concept that underpins macroevolution is randomness. It's randomness. It is not purposefully designed. And when you take the concept of a purposeful design and insert it into evolution, to macroevolution, it's no longer macroevolution. It's intelligent design at that point. You, you cannot combine these two things. They are fundamentally different and distinct. So when you try to combine these things, all sorts of stuff breaks down. There's just gobs and gobs and gobs of problems that occur when, when this happens. Um, not the least of which, in the Scripture, when something is stated that God says this is to occur, He says, I want this to happen, it happens right then. There's no delay. There's no pause. It's not, you know what? Light decided to take a couple days before it was formed. You know, let there be light, and light said, nope, I'm going to hang back for a few days. I'm just going to relax. I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to mail it in the first few days. I'm like, no. Light came into being. Right? This, this is the way the universe happened. Um, this is the way the universe happened. Probably the easiest example of this is the direct creation of uh, Adam and Eve. So then the third idea here is that it's going to be pretty much in opposition what the Scripture clearly teaches. Uh, and this is Grudem's third point, is the theory of a gap between Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Um, the problem with this is, so, so let me give you a little background. So the gap theory says there's a big gap between Genesis 1 and 1 and 1, 2. There was some massive revolt or rebellion that took place that Satan may or may not have led. Uh, that resulted in all kinds of death and destruction and real, real, real attempts to explain uh, scientific evidence that seems to point toward a very, very old earth. All right, great. So we get past that, and uh, the gap theory, the, the problem, first problem I have with it is that nowhere in Scripture does anything state that this actually occurred, right? So challenge number one. Uh, challenge number two, when you get to the end of the first week of creation, God looked at everything that he had made, everything that he had made, and he called it very good. So if there was massive rebellion during that week, God is looking at all of what he has made, and that is very good. That seems to be different than God's standard of goodness in the rest of the Scripture. Because God's standard of goodness in the rest of the Scripture is Jesus Christ, is perfection, is flawlessness. If you read through the Old Testament and you read about these sacrifices, and the sacrifice couldn't have any blemish, it couldn't have a spot, right? So you've got this lamb, and well, he's perfect except for this, just this, this one little spot. Not a valid sacrifice. It's not okay. It's got to be flawless is the only way he accepts things. So to say that God would look at some massive rebellion that resulted in a tremendous amount of pain and agony and say, that was very good, seems to be very inconsistent with what the Scripture says. So, let's keep going. Now, Grudem spends about two, chap two chapters, two uh, paragraphs in his book at this point saying, Attention, attention, at this point, people will begin to have wildly differing views that he believes can be accompanied by Scripture, either a very narrow interpretation or a more liberal interpretation. I have a particular view on this. You may or may not figure out what my view is by the time we're done. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Uh, but some, a couple things about the age of the earth. So uh, how many of you have been taught that the age of the earth is 6,000 years? 
My hand is up. My hand is up as far as 6,000 years. Uh, you get to 6,000 years by adding up all of the genealogies in the Old Testament, assuming that there are no gaps in any of those genealogies. Okay? If you assume there's no gaps in any of those genealogies, you can add up all the years. So so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he was 106 when he did. And his son begat so-and-so, and he was 47 when he did. And his son, and you go and you write it all out, and you get Excel, and you put your numbers in, and sum the whole column, and, you know, you get like 6,000 years. It's great. The problem with that approach, uh, and I've listed several verses there in your notes, uh, and we're not going to go look them all up. This is a good little homework assignment. Um, the, please tell me that I, I didn't put those verses in your notes. They're in my notes. If you want to go on the, online, you can look at my notes and see that. Uh, if you compare some of the genealogies with some of the other genealogies, they don't all match up in Scripture. And they don't all match up because God is telling a very specific story when He's listing people in the genealogies. He's not necessarily saying, this is how old the earth is. He's trying to communicate a point to certain people about either land rights or heritage or your background. But some levels of some genealogies get skipped. So you can look in Matthew chapter 1 and compare one that's in 1 Chronicles, and the one in 1 Chronicles has got six names, and the one in Matthew chapter 1 has got three names. And you go, error in the Bible? No, it's not an error in the Bible. God talks about so-and-so's father very, very, very liberally. Right? Jesus was called a son of David. Okay, for you Bible scholars, what was Jesus' father's name? Joseph. It doesn't sound like David, does it? Yeah, it doesn't look like that in Hebrew either. They're, they're different words. Because way back, David was one of Jesus' ancestors. Right? Okay? This is how we explain this. This is not a problem for us. The Bible is true. It is very true. So there's gaps in the genealogies. So since there's gaps in the genealogies, how much of a gap could there be? It's a good question, right? It's a question that doesn't have an answer. It would be very difficult to answer a question. How do, you, how do you solve a math problem and you only have two-thirds of the stuff that you need to solve it? You don't. You don't. You struggle. You beat your head against the wall until you realize your professor is playing a mean, dirty trick on you. Yes, I was in those classes. It was not fun. Give us assignments. It'll take you about three weeks to figure this out. Oh, by the way, it doesn't have an answer. That's a three-week answer later. It's all horrible. Just mean people. Um, so so we, it's very difficult to use the Scripture itself to calculate a number on how old the earth is. So there's a couple different theories on how you get to either young earth or old earth. So we'll define young earth as anything 20,000 years and less. Okay, So we'll assume a lot of gaps, like a lot, a lot, a lot of gaps. And we'll define old earth as what current modern science would say. Uh, evolution says that the earth has been around about 4.5 billion years. Okay, so you've either got, you're either on the four and a half billion side or less than 20,000 side. And, and if, you, if you like wrote the numbers out, there's a lot of zeros different. Okay, it's my formal mathematical evaluation of those two numbers. A lot of zeros different. So this is substantially different one way or the other. So the major concepts for these different branches, uh, the old earth theories, number one is the day-age view, the day-age view. How many of you have heard of the day-age view? So, Genesis 1, uh, <clears throat> day number 1, 
was not really 24 hours. It was an age of time that a lot of stuff happened. And now, it's interesting to note that nobody on the planet believed this before Charles Darwin, in 1859, published his Origin of the Species and Natural Selection. Nobody believed this. It was an attempt to force the Scripture into fit what might look like modern science. So just, just a point to remember. So these ages are very, very, very long. Um, my problem with the day-age view is that if these ages are very, very, very long... Amy, can you list the, the date? This was incredibly helpful. Thank you so much, by the way. Um, we didn't plan this at all. She just happened to know, so it was great. So day one was light. Day two was sky. Day three was vegetation. Good. Yes, excellent. And day four was what? Sun, moon, and stars. Um, what kind of light was there on day one? We don't know, right? Yeah. Shekinah, there you go. Very possibly, right? Uh, can plants grow in Shekinah glory light? A lot of different things can happen. Some of the rocks that get thrown at the day-age theory are, are rocks like, well, there was no sun for day three. And if these are long ages, how could these plants have survived without a sun? Well, there's, there's problems with that, too, because you could say, well, the light itself that God created on day one covered this. Okay, all right. But the, the real problem for me is actually in the book of Exodus. This is the biggest problem with the day-age view. Let's see if I can find my verse here. Uh, it is, is, it, is it in anybody's handout? Exodus, yeah, 20, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Exodus 20. So what, what happens in Exodus 20, if you know your Bible? This is the 10 commandments. Yes, very good. So what does verse 8 say? Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. By George, do you not go out to eat on Sunday afternoon? Because that is not keeping the Sabbath day holy. How many of you were brought up like that? Yes, I got thought that too. What's the next verse say? Verse 9. Six what? Six, say it loud for me. Six days. Keep going. Each week for your ordinary work. The seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. Okay, keep going. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. Sounds like a great day. Keep going. <laughs> For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Say that again really, really loud. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Okay, so God doesn't seem to have a problem here. In Exodus chapter 20, communicating to Moses <clears throat> the things that Moses is going to write into stone for people to remember. Sunday that, Yeah, that you're supposed to have a Sunday afternoon nap. That's great. Uh, that creation was six days long. So one of my issues with the day-age theory is that it seems to fly in the face of what God clearly articulated uh, a thousand or so years later, maybe 2,000. Um, so the second big view is the literary framework view. This one's weird. Um, <clears throat> It says that those first three days were really an analogy where we're painting a picture of emptiness. So we have light. We have what else? Uh, We have uh, sky and we have land. 
And then day four, five, and six, we fill the sky with the sun, moon, and the stars. We fill the, we fill the light with the sun, moon, and the stars. We fill the sky with the fish and the birds. And we fill the land with uh, man and the animals, which, well, that's kind of a cool arrangement. But that, I, didn't, I didn't quite get how that required a lot of time. So that, that one was lost on me. So two biggest views on the, the old earth, the young earth theories uh, number one, creation with an appearance of age. So this is mature creationism. So creation with an appearance of age, which, which we all believe, but we may not have heard articulated. So when the Bible says that God created Adam, he formed him, and then he put Adam to sleep, and he formed Eve, he took a rib out and formed Eve, how old were they? They, they weren't like day one, right? There's no pacifier needed. I mean, we... we we think that there was some level of maturity because Adam said, Whoa, man. He did. It's in the Bible right there in Genesis 2. Um, so, so there's some level of maturity. The Bible says that God created trees. Trees. Trees have what? Rings. He didn't create acorns. And then we wait. You know, Adam, in 50 years, this is going to be really cool. So just hang tight. Just hang tight. No. There was a mature creation when God created it. One of the, one of the proponents of, uh, of uh, uh, macroevolution says that, well, the stars must have been created billions of years ago to be able to be seen for the light to be able to get there in time because the light takes a long time to get over periods of space. If God can create an old man in an old tree, I don't have a problem with him creating an old star that's already shining on earth. I'm okay with that. He, he created the whole concept of light. I bet that's not a problem too hard for him. I'm just saying. I bet it's not a problem too hard for him. So you've got this idea of um, creation with an age, with an appearance of age, and then two, flood geology. So you say, well, what about all this? And what about all that? Well, the flood wrecked the whole world. And if you want a good resource to go for this, AnswersInGenesis.com. It's a fantastic resource. Actually, one of our folks from our church now works there. And he's actually coming back to Chattanooga two weekends from now, I think, uh, and going to be speaking here in Chattanooga, which is kind of cool. So he and Ken Hanham are coming, and it's going to be pretty neat. So there's old, 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 uh, like three comma old, and then there's very, very young, like one comma young, views of creation. Perhaps you've picked up on which one I'm on. Uh, so the application here, Grudem has a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, little soliloquy that I'm going to read a portion of it here. Um, he says, uh, The age of the earth is a matter that is not directly taught in Scripture, but is something we can think about by drawing more or less uh, probable inferences from Scripture. Given this situation, it would be, seem best that, to admit that, one, God may not allow us to find a clear solution to this question before Christ returns. And to two, encourage evangelical scientists and theologians who fall in both the young earth and the old earth camps to begin to work together with much less arrogance, much more humility, and a much greater sense of cooperation in a common purpose. Both sides need to grow in knowledge of the truth, even if this means abandoning long-held positions. Which I think was kind of a cool way to say, chill the heck out because you ain't got a verse about it. Right? So, lots of material this morning. Uh, there's a Scripture verse at the very end, I think it's Nehemiah 9.6. Is that the, the Scripture verse? Yes, for next week. So if you've got Nehemiah 9.6 memorized next week when we come back in, we've got a gift for you. I'm going to go back to Lifeway and stock up again this week since we're running a little low. 
And uh, thanks for coming to Sunday School today. On your table, in the middle of the table, is a piece of paper. Make sure your name is on that piece of paper. That's how we take roll. Uh, that's how we take attendance. And then if you've got any prayer requests that you'd like somebody to pray for, we would love to pray for those uh, with you as a group uh, before you go. So thanks for coming, guys.